Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Friday the 13th, the final chapter, starring Kimberly Beck, Peter Barton, and Corey Feldman. Screenplay by Barry Cohen and directed by Joseph Zito. Welcome back to Rise Smile Films. It's time to continue on with our yearly uh, foray into Slasher Dome with the big three franchises. I think, what do we call it? We're going to call this one the Fearsome Four? Yeah. <laughs> the Fearsome Part Fours. Fearsome and fours. up first, uh, as we've always been starting with, Friday the 13th is the franchise up next. So, yeah, from 1984... The final chapter, the one that was supposed to put the nail in this franchise's coffin, and as we're about to find out, it's going to churn out another, I believe, eight more films. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, not quite the final chapter, but uh, certainly something that got people excited. Uh, I think everyone will remember the the movie poster, which is a hockey mask and a pool of blood with a hunting knife through its eye, and I think it says something like Jason's unlucky day. And I joked with you just, you know, while we were watching of everyone remembers, you know, that VHS box at Blockbuster or wherever you rented video or videos from, which was that image. And then on the back was like the dude in the shower and then Corey Feldman with that weird like Zaxxon alien mask on. Uh, And then everyone remembers Night of the Demon, right? The just demon face with the eyeball on the toothpick. There's just like something about browsing VHS and you go into that horror aisle you're going to remember those two tapes. I always remembered those and never rented them until much later. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think Shannon Elizabeth remade Night mm. of the Demon. Did she sure did, Demons. Yeah. Uh, I think I might have seen that. Yeah. Uh, I never saw the original one either, but that was a big part of the marketing in this. Mm-hmm. You already have a pretty well-established villain, and that's going to be obviously what you center the story around, but what the box looked like on the shelf was really important. Oh, yeah, to and get you enticed into Maybe I should check that out. Mm-hmm. And that's a good little image there. But we're going to have a ton to talk about today. we got some fun questions. Um, and yeah, talk about all things Mr. Jason Voorhees. And promised you a new bottle this week. This is Davies County. This is a Sour Mash 96 proof Kentucky bourbon whiskey finished in French oak barrels. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty smooth drink, isn't it? Is this the first time for you with this yep. one? Mm-hmm. Never that's, heard of that brand before, so. That's great. That's a good little try. Coming in right under that 100 proof, which is when we veer into that territory, it's a little more intense, a little harsher, but it's a pretty palatable drink. I get a vanilla, mm-hmm. and I can definitely feel or taste that smell, that wood on the back. Oak. That's nice. Good choice, man. Yeah, not bad. Did that come to this uh, with the Davies County? <laughs> Drink to your leg. Drink to your leg, too. Excellent. Well, let's get this party started with our flight question. All righty, so... Part four in the world of franchises, once you start veering into this fourth entry territory, it gets a little muddled, right? I mean, 
how much longevity can a franchise hold four injuries in. Uh, so our flight and nightcap are going to complement each other pretty well this week. So let's start first with the your favorite or what you think is the best part four fourth entry in a franchise. So I guess maybe the the rules it just has to come fourth in. So um, even so if so, you it, can't say a new hope, even though it's chapter I, four. I think you can. I think mm. I think that would that would allow, even though that one came out first. Mm. The fourth entry would be the Phantom Menace, and no one ain't picking that entry. No. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just best part four with the moniker four, four in the title comes fourth, fourth in the series. Uh, I'm kind of torn between two. Okay. Um, you know, once you get to four you don't have a really robust list mm-hmm. and three of the franchises that made it to four, which would be nightmare yeah. Halloween and Friday the 13th. We can't use cause those are against the rules. So yeah, the choices are diminishing a bit. However, one franchise, although this is not my favorite in the franchise, I think was still going pretty strong, but yeah. I think a lot of people argue this could be on the list. That's not good as well, but I'm going to go with Rocky. Nice. I think Rocky Four is a solid entry. Uh, we're getting a little bit away from what I think one and two really did well. Uh, and we're moving into a bit more of an action boxing movie. I mm-hmm. think that started with three. Yeah. Um, if you can believe that it's the patriotic boxing match uh, <laughs> for capitalism versus Cold War era communism, it's a little tough to get behind that. But what's not tough to get behind is what an intimidating force Drago was mm-hmm. at that time. He's yeah. so much bigger. Yeah. And, you know, you kill Apollo and basically strip Rocky back down to, I think, what's as close to what he is in the first film, mm-hmm. reduced to lifting rocks and climbing up snow hills. Yeah, and yeah. Um, That being said, there's a couple of mistakes. Hearts on Fire is a terrible choice. They should have never <laughs> used that song. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless... It's still a really good movie if you are a fan of the Rocky series, although that is somewhat controversial. There's a lot of people that hate this film and say this is where the franchise ruined itself. I'm not one of them. Yeah, me either. I think when we did our Rocky six film retrospective uh, like two years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we were both pretty positive on that one. I think that was a good rewatch for us, and I've always liked part four. Yeah. Uh, Which montage do I like better? I think I like the there's no easy way out driving angry memory flash montage more yeah. than anything uh yeah you're right about drago what a formidable foe mm-hmm. he was and it was really great to see that component come back in creed 2 which is mm-hmm. definitely a future cask once part three rears its head right in production i think it's done i think it just they're wrapping it all up right i think straight to streaming Oh, no, I think you have a point there because MGM has been bought out by Amazon, right? So there might be a component of it going directly there, but maybe they'll do a thing where it'll come out on both, right? Yeah, supposedly pretty limited uh, work in there by Stallone. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're gearly, I think, handing the the reins over here, but we'll see. I'm okay with that. It's time. I thought, you know, this isn't the Creed review, Creed 2 review, but I thought they ended Rocky's story ended kind of nicely at the end of that that second Creed film. As did I. And we'll talk about that uh, when we do that film one day, but great choice. Thanks. Uh, do you have any honorable mentions? We, we can save them. I do, just in case it happens to be yours as well. Okay. Uh, part four, this was pretty easy for me. I, I'm 100% sure where you're going Okay. Uh, and I have some pretty decent honorable mentions, but when I was kind of doing some research and just looking at my uh, shelves in there, I was like, 
There's one part four that stands up above the rest. It's Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. That's not what I thought you were going to do. Yeah. You'll have to give me your, your guess there. But Okay. Uh, yeah, part four, like that film, shouldn't be as good as it is mm-hmm. in a franchise that is kind of has middling returns, right? Yeah. One's okay. Two's pretty good. Three's a disaster. And then the fourth comes out with not really the same creative team other than the director, right? Mm-hmm. That movie just slays. It just kicks ass from yes. beginning to end. And go back and listen to our episode on that where we were very glowing about just what a pristine action film that is. But I think I, I felt like that when I saw it. I was like, gosh, a, a part four coming this late after Thunderdome, almost 20 years, shouldn't be as good as this movie is. So Yeah, agreed. That's my number four. Excellent choice. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's yeah. sort of shameful. No, that's okay. Shame on me. That's a really good one. I... I'm going to tell you, I was certain. Yeah. Balls on 100% you're going to go with Thunderball. That's, I do like Thunderball. I'm a Thunderball apologist, which in the canon of Bond films, uh, you either yin or yang on Thunderball. You either think it's... That's Lazenby, right? No, that's still Connery. Oh, Connery. Uh, you think it's pretty good or boring, but there's something about Bond in the ocean that like just feels right. Mm-hmm. The Bond girl's good in that. The villain's good. I mean, it's full-on Spectre and... I think it's, you know, Sean Connery like really knows this character now. Mm-hmm. I, I really dig Thunderball. I was certain you were going to go there. Mm. Well, lo and behold, I was wrong. Good choice. Uh, so my honorable mention is, I think what's my favorite entry in the entire series, that's Mr. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Nice. Uh, I think that's just really, really well done. It helps that the kids have matured enough to where I buy them a little bit more as comparable foes instead of just little children walking around. Certainly had kind of figured out the roles. And I think at that point, without the knowledge of the story for me, I'd come to really have a filmatic understanding of of Hogwarts and all things Hogwarts related. I just, that's a terrific film. I really, really like it. Um, Robert Pattinson and Mm -hmm. uh, this sort of, what would you say? Tournament of of wizards, the the Triwizard Tournament. The Triwizard Tournament. That's just, that's such a great setting. Backdrop, yeah. And then when we finally get the showdown between Voldemort and his posse versus Harry and mm-hmm. his learn in that room with those crystals and um, in the graveyard. God, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I think everything was like really kind of improving. I think like Alfonso Caron like really kind of helped laid the groundwork for how dark the material could get and how serious you could treat it. And then when they do part four and you just have a really good, uh, yeah, that tournament backdrop. I know we like sports, so it's yeah. almost like this, like Olympics of wizards, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we'll dive into the Harry Potter franchise one of these days, but... Um, you know, Kurt, I don't know if I've ever asked you this, or yeah. if I have, I've forgotten. Yeah. Did you read all the books? I've read the two and a half of <laughs> the books. Yeah. So most of my Potter knowledge does come from the films. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I think I think as, as a franchise, I think it's a, a very solid franchise. Yeah. Uh, and one I hadn't seen uh, up until a while back was Part 7, Part 1, Deathly Hollows Part 1. You hadn't seen it? I hadn't it? seen it. It was oh. the only one I hadn't seen for whatever reason. Hmm. And I thought it was great. Yeah. It might be my second favorite one, actually, because um, it was just so different formulaic. It wasn't like a school movie. It was like them on, like, it was like a quest movie, right? Right. It was kind of like Infinity War a little bit. It was. So, great choice. Thanks. Which, I, Rocky what, Four was one of my honorable mentions, and then also Mr. Stallone as well, uh, self-titled Just Rambo. Mm-hmm. I remember taking my dad to see that movie, or we went together, and like, take him. We went to go see Rambo, right? Mm-hmm. 
might be the most violent movie I think I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. The part when he just Rambo just sticks his hands in that guy's throat and just rips the guy's throat out. I'm like, ah, this is a Rambo movie. No kidding. Jesus. That one's in like Cambodia, right? It's uh-huh. just like, and he's trying to like help the refugees, but man, it's just merciless, mercilessly brutal. And another fourth entry, that came out like I think the year or two after Rocky Balboa. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what's with Stallone reviving these franchises? And they're just really good now. They are. Yeah. Any consideration to Live Free or Die Hard or Lethal Weapon 4? No. No. I think Lethal Weapon 4 got that thing at least to a place where (laughs) if it was done and stays done, TV and otherwise, Mm -hmm. it didn't leave such a disgusting taste in my mouth. I wouldn't say that's a good film, but I thought that that resurrected it a bit. Lethal Weapon has at least like the team coming back. Like it's still Richard Donner. It's all the same cast. Um but like Live Free or Die Hard is kind of a huge miss. It, that, I remember really being put out that that one was PG-13, and that that really bothered me when that came out. And yeah, bad choice. The cyber terrorist, like Timothy Oliphant's pretty good in that in that role, and I don't mind Justin Long as kind of like the swarmy sidekick, but you can kind of tell Willis is kind of like, ah, did we really need to come back? Especially after With a Vengeance. That one rocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then don't even get me started on A Good Day to Die Hard in Mother Russia. Jesus, that's one of the worst movies ever made. Yeah, no thanks on that one. Um, any others? Any others? Part fours? My list of worst part fours is also pretty good. <laughs> pretty long list. Yeah, no, th- I think that did it for me. Okay, excellent, excellent. What about, oh, I have one more for you. No Saw? No. <laughs> you didn't like Saw 4? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, that's really where it starts to get long in the tooth. Saw, Saw 4 does a cool thing... Uh, story wise which is up until the the twist at the end of Saw 4 is you you actually realize that this film is actually taking place concurrently with Saw 3 Mm. and it's kind of revealed in a pretty clever way towards the end of that film so I thought that was pretty cool I'd never seen that done in a film before Mm. Um, but by the end of that I mean Donnie Wahlberg gets his head crushed by two ice blocks at the end of that movie but yeah no, no, no Saw 4 for me okay Excellent. Great choices. Cheers to, to that. I can't wait to hear the worst. Um, but let's go ahead and dive right in with our review breakdown of Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Hi, girls. Thanks for waiting. Oh, no. Get lost, Axel. I'm busy. I've had more than enough of you for one night. Read my lips. Leave me alone! Alrighty, so just playing off of the audio clip and we'll kind of get going with the beginning here. Let's jump back to last year, Matt. Friday the 13th, part three in 3D, in three dimensions, right? Mm. Kind of a ridiculous movie. I, I talked to you during this that, you know, it kind of doesn't work for me because it's, it's overly lit because in order to even see a depth of the three dimensions they're trying to pull off, you have to light everything like really brightly and harshly, especially in 1982, right? So it's not really scary. It's not really dark. So there's immediate improvement here from the beginning, which was I think this is a more fiercer, more savage Jason. And I think that they're able to 
tonally kind of get back to making a horror movie instead of something that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jason in those movies kind of stumbles his way through different things. And in part two, he's falling off of chairs and kind of being a buffoon. But here, I mean, this Jason's going to rack up a kill count at, at the end of this movie here. Yeah. Uh, but we start at the beginning here with picking up right where the last film left out. We get a little montage of sorts and kind of nice encapsulation of what's happened through parts one through four, leading us up to this moment, the final chapter. Really like that our end credits like blow up in our face mm-hmm. in the final chapter, right? But then we get this aftermath scene, and for a film that has a $2 million budget, like what did you think of like you have all of the first responders out here, you have a helicopter shot, and then it ends with like this like crane shot as everything kind of leaves. Like for a movie that has no money, it's kind of impressive. Yeah, they really did craft a production-wise a solid film. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that speaks to some of the talents of the director and we'll talk about maybe his work going forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I guess after, at at this point through four, didn't three have the largest budget of any of them? Had the largest budget and had a pretty decent box office return as well. Even though it was a bad film. Yeah. I think the 3D piece on that is kitschy and got you in there, but I mean, it's slasher horror, so we can make that argument in a lot of different ways. It's... Mm -hmm. Am I just showing up for story to see what kind of crazy kills they can come up with? And all those work. They all work. Well, don't you also too remember, don't forget what you're about to say, but yeah. how fucking ridiculous like Shelly was with all his freaking yes. pranks and yes. the juggling and the the hippie stoners yep. and the biker gang. Like it just, there's just such an air of just stupidity in that film mm-hmm. that this film kind of just gets away from, right? I mean, we kind of get back to like what the first film was really good at, which was kind of stalking dread. Yeah. Yeah. Which helps define Jason now. Mm-hmm. I think after two, maybe before two, I asked you if you were going to give a trait to each one of the characters yeah. who is the sneakiest. Yeah. And I think we both agreed that it was probably Jason, mm-hmm. but not until this moment. Yeah, Jason in this film, for lack of a better jump scare reference point, is sort of jump scare brooding, creeping dread that seems to be one step ahead of you when it comes to strategizing your escape paths. Mm -hmm. In this movie, they really did hit on that. And I think for a $2 million budget, that's a good way to go because mostly that's cheap. Yeah. He's just shot ahead of you, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Um, And what that gives Jason is... I think a move a little bit away from just hulking, brooding, stalking muscle to a little bit more cerebral. And I know we'll get to this as it's going forward, but the question that I kept thinking watching this today was, so where does this leave Michael? And I know it's not his podcast and we'll get into that <laughs> next week. Yeah. Right. Next week or two weeks. Two weeks. We're doing Friday. Two weeks. We're doing yeah. nightmare next week. Okay. Yeah. But Jason in this film is a little bit more strategic and I think a better chess player than those that he's with. And here's the other thing too, for $2 million, Mm -hmm. they got four actors that were cheap, but had some talent as later revealed. Okay. So Feldman, um, Crispin Glover. Mm -hmm. And I think his character is pretty good in this at what Crispin Glover does. Yeah. He's a very Crispin Glover type. (laughs) Yeah. The chick who's naked the whole time. That's also in weird science. Samantha. Yeah. And 
the guy who was also in Last American Virgin. Mm -hmm. Now, none of those four probably have stellar careers. Yeah. But you don't need it. And they were able to probably be acquired for pennies to be in this film. Yeah. But it worked out in the film's benefit because they were cheap. And I think they brought... Some personality. Yeah, a little bit of skill to this role. And I think so far, with the exception of Nightmare 3... Yeah. These are the most defined characters we've had Mm -hmm. as introduced to Slaughter. Well, yep. Nightmare Nightmare 3 has the the great Craig Wasson, right? (laughs) Mighty Craig Wasson. When are we going to do Body Double? Ooh. I don't know. We got to do body double one day. Okay. Because we got to spend like 15 minutes breaking down the Craig Wasson pretending to go act in a porno film, which is essentially a backdrop music video for Frankie Goes to Hollywood's Relax. (laughs) Wild. Crazy. Insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. Uh, No, I'm with you because, yeah, you have Patricia Arquette, uh, Lawrence Fishburne in that. There's a supreme amount of talent in Dream Warriors. But, yeah, for what this film, like none of those guys are – gonna lead or headline a film other than Crispin Glover with like Willard or something like that right yeah and you said this is what a year before Back to the Future right a year before right yeah which we talked a little bit we'll get to him in in a little bit but like just his his sensibilities and how kind of weird he is and speaking of James Bond I never knew his dad was an actor I think his name's Julian Glover and he plays one of the gay-esque henchmen Mr. Winton Kid uh in Diamonds Are Forever James Bond film huh and I never knew the connection, but when you look at Julian Glover in that film, you're like, yeah, that's Crispin's dad. They look identical to each other. Mm. And kind of a weird dude, kind of himself as mm-hmm. well. Um, but here, yeah, we're taking Jason to the to the morgue. And this is kind of where I knew, like, we're kind of in a different territory to the other entries. What's also helping is uh, now that Paramount has officially decided this is the last film we're making. Let's send Jason out right. Let's do him in good. But let's bring Tom Savini back to do some of these makeup effects. He helped do the Kevin Bacon stuff early on mm-hmm. and decapitated Mrs. Voorhees. And he made up the the little Jason that jumped out of the lake. So kind of feels natural to bring him back to kill off his creation, right? Sure. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why he wanted to do it. Because he didn't do the last two films. But these two uh, opening kills here with Axel, the, the morgue guy. Which, what's with the sleazy morgue guy who is unabashed to eat on the bodies and then screw by the bodies. Yeah. And then he's just a sleazeball. Like, dude, what the hell is he watching? Just like aerobic porn? Yeah. Or may as well be watching porn because what, what even is that? Is it a music video? Like, what's going on there? Yeah, sex-inspired jazzercise. Very weird. The but, a- 80s obsession with uh, aerobics, right? Yeah, they were everywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's an interesting character because I think introducing him as Jason's first kill allows me or the audience, if I'm the audience to sort of pull for Jason. Yeah. That guy's gross. He's sleazy. Mm-hmm. I hate that his chicken salad is on the corner of his mouth. He's just gross. Yeah. And so if you introduce Jason whacking somebody that's really, really hateable, you can't side with Jason cause he's going to do terrible things. It's not, but it is his movie. It mm-hmm. is his franchise. Yeah. And so, Early on, I think it conditions the audience to sort of start pulling for our slasher mm-hmm. boogeyman in a way I don't know if we've done through any of the first three films yet. Now, yeah. when he gets to the nurse, mm-hmm. maybe I don't feel quite as bad, but she's sort of ridiculous too with her stupid headache. And then 
whatever the nonsense about but watching the news and then let's get late as we watch the news. Like, she's a mess, too. They're both done in pretty brutally. They are. Axel gets a bone saw, bone saw mm-hmm. <laughs> to the neck, and then Jason just twists his head right 180. Off. Yeah. And the, the film has to cut to, uh, away from it right away because th- this film probably had an MPAA problem of mm-hmm. the violence, right? And then she's in the little medical area taking inventory, and then she gets like a scalpel through the sternum and then sliced right down to the groin. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like, you kind of know from that, that's a good tone setter of like, eh, maybe this movie's not playing around compared to freaking Shelly and juggling and walking around on hand, handstands, right? There's just, there's so much about part three that, well, I can see the charm in it, like really kind of lost its way with th- just how preposterous it was. And maybe that was the production, but here I think everything's just in a little bit better hands. So this is what, 84? 1984, yeah. At we, so we're at a place where the slasher horrors close to its apex it's it's about to fully peak at the end of this year yeah i think this movie helps with that Mm -hmm. we've realized that whether it's the house that freddie built or how powerful jason is and we don't really need to put a lot of money into the acting because he's the main star and he doesn't have a line the entire series we just have to get sort of the body shape that fits a hulking kind of looking Voorhees character let's dump that money into these really interesting way to kill people uh, now that's at face value, a terrible premise to be interested in a film. <laughs> yeah. But I think if you can be creative with what Jason does insofar as killing the people he's after, it ends up being the through line through the midpoint or the second act that, mm-hmm. that sort of saves that drag. Cause it is a simple, simple story. Yeah. So, Another thing that works pretty well in this is I'm not sure about the writer and his work going forward. Mm -hmm. And maybe the executives just got out of the way or maybe the executives had a clear vision and hired someone who could deliver it. But it is pretty simple. Send him out with a a, a blaze of glory and we're going to give you a lot of special effects in order to do it well. So Mm -hmm. provide us with some really cool kills. And here's the other thing too. Yeah. Give me just enough subtext with the fodder. Yeah that they all don't feel like just another naked version of A, B, or C. And maybe some characters we might actually care about, too. Yeah. I don't care about Chuck and Chili <laughs> last last go-round. Right. And, uh, yeah, just some of these characters. I, I remember the scene in the last one where they're eating the pot in the van, and those, the other girl's like, oh, but I'm pregnant. And I'm like, did we need that, too? Like, oh, that's yeah. just an extra thing on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. She won't do that, but then she'll, she's going to have a beer later on. After they're quickie in the yeah. in the hammock, right? No, I'm with you. Uh, we're introduced to a, 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 our slew of characters here, and I like how they they, they kind of play both sides here with the with the 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 environment and the landscape, which is these two houses, mm-hmm. and then this kind of house all the way, which may as well be just I think like an Airbnb, right? It's just being rented out for the summer or weekend uh, by these kids. Um, but we have the Jarvis family. Um, we have. See if we have mom, we have Trish, and then young little Tommy Jarvis, Mr. Corey Feldman. And they do something kind of interesting with him. And I, I never know if I like it or not. And I'm interested to kind of get your take on it. But kind of the way they decide to portray him is this very intuitive, uh, innovative kid that's 
into computer graphics or playing games. He's into making masks. So he has that kind of creative spirit, very Tom Savini like, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he's also pretty good around like fixing things. I mean, he knows more about fixing a car than I do. Way I more than I don't mine. know what a solenoid is. <laughs> Both of us together. Um, what do you think of that? Is it is it a little bit too ridiculous, or maybe it's just enough to work and to the way the film plays out? Maybe you know, be Jason's Achilles heel of this ingenuity that young Mister Jarvis is doing. Is this the right way to go with this, or just what's your take on it? Well, we finally armed someone with some potential to do in Jason. <laughs> It's interesting path that they choose, which is it's basically makeup and creativity. So maybe this is Savini giving a little nod or an acknowledgement to himself. I don't know, maybe. But I do think finally giving someone a skill set that can match Jason or at least fend off Jason is refreshing. Yeah. Because we've seen countless co-ed after countless co-ed try maybe a little bit of Brawny, mm -hmm. which never seems to work. Yeah. So this is a different approach. The interesting piece on this would be the role that children play in each of our three titular characters. Mm. They have a big, big, big piece, and whether it's Michael, Jason, or Freddie. Yeah. In this particular case, whether it's mom and then Jason's subsequent issues post-mom's uh, decapitation. Yeah. And we'll get to the other two later as that goes on. But I think that's a really interesting premise because I kind of buy it. Jamie Kennedy and Scream is going to lay out the rules mm -hmm. for the slasher killer. And maybe those are accurate and maybe they aren't. But inside the film, and I've wondered with this, I've wondered about this for years with you. Yeah. Inside the film, the characters as we know it don't have a code of survival, whether it's crosses or sunlight or yeah. pentagrams, there, there's no rules. Mm -hmm. As important as that is in your horror films with the big three proper, does it bother you? And I'm, take away Jamie Kennedy's scream stuff because yeah. that's that's almost fourth, fourth person, fourth wall sort of breaking. Yeah, the meta component, yeah. Okay. Does it bother you that there's not a code that they've learned through... God, three, six, uh, it's 10 films now um, and come to sort of guide their actions by? By 10 films, I mean Freddie, Jason, and Michael sure. all combined. Um, I don't know. I'm not, I think I'm still getting a decent amount of mileage out of watching people, their best reaction of survival, right? How would you react in a situation like that? And I think that's one of the things that's interesting to me with particularly slasher films, which is it's of all the threats ghost, vampire, zombie. The slasher's the most realistic, right? I mean, like, there are real maniacs out in the world, and hopefully you would never find yourself in a situation like this, but as kind of like, you know, trying to play devil's advocate of, could I survive this type of situation? If this guy was chasing me, could I outrun him? Could I outsmart him? Would I probably wouldn't go down into the basement? I'd probably do this instead. So I guess the lack of rules would maybe kind of diminish that minish the kind of the what if possibilities of the scenario. But yeah, you're right. I'm surprised that there, there isn't kind of a more defined thing other than don't have sex, don't drink or do drugs. Cause then you're just kind of, uh, your mortality is going to go up. Right. Mm. So, um, your mortality rate. 
The reason I ask that is I think they're playing around with that idea, whether it's actually being discussed in the production room or the screenwriting room. And I would say that that's defendable for me with the character that shows up that is the brother of what's her name that died in two. Sandra, yeah. What's that guy's name in this film? Rob. Okay, so Rob shows up in this flannel shirt, sort of like the preppy version of Grizzly Adams. <laughs> and kind of being a weirdo. Kinda. Yeah. At a place where there isn't really a lot of people. And he makes a comment early on, like, I didn't think there were people that lived out here. Mm-hmm. So two things are happening right away. Number one, I think this movie has recognized the importance of the neighborhood to change the spectrum with which the kills exist in. What I mean by that, in particular to Friday the 13th, is it can't just be camp counselor after camp counselor after camp counselor at the same location. The camp would just be shut down. Isn't that kind of great about this franchise, though? Like, everyone is like, everyone remembers Camp Crystal Lake, right? Sure, yeah. I got a sign in my garage that says Camp Crystal Lake. Yep. But, like, I think only two of these movies actually take place at Camp Crystal Lake. Yeah. The last three that we've watched haven't. (laughs) And what really works in this one, to get even further away from that, is in the middle of the woods, they kind of create a suburb. It's only two houses. Mm, Yeah. But you know where that's worked really well? Yeah. All through Halloween and all through Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. So they're realizing, okay, the, the forest and the woods were pretty good, but although it's fun to chase someone through a forest... See any Wolfman movie. (laughs) Suburbia works really well because there's just a prevalence of people and that is a more likely component to get killed. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Second thing is with Rob, he has come back to the middle of nowhere suburbia Woodville, hellbent on avenging his sister's murder. And whether that's he's just hates Jason because he killed his sister or he wants to do good by society and Mm -hmm. rid the world of this terrible evil we're starting to play with what my premise was. And that's maybe we're having a discussion about what we can do Mm -hmm. to fight off Jason. If this is the final chapter, we have to arm these people with something to do him in. Mm -hmm. Now, one more thing, and then I'll give the mic back to you. Once Rob is picked up by the Jarvis family and taken home, Mm -hmm. it seems likely that he's going to roll on Trish. Like that's what we would expect a little bit. Yeah. In fact, that doesn't happen, but what does happen is he strikes up a friendship with Tommy almost immediately. And Tommy takes him up into his bedroom and they're playing monster paraphernalia. Here's the one thing that I wish this film had was a little bit more of a discussion with Rob and Tommy about what he's doing there. Yeah. Because then you start to align, I think what are two for the first time in the film, semi reasonable forces to undo Jason's terrible, terrible deeds, creating a team and from that you build, I still believe it, but mm-hmm. you build something that looks like a possibility of defense. Yeah, it, yeah it's, still, it's still there. It's there. Don't get me wrong. It's there. It's just. Yeah, because Tommy Jarvis is kind of like, he's like the kid that grew up watching like monster movies and Godzilla. I yeah. mean, he like grew up like me, right? <laughs> or uh, us. us. Yeah. He, he read those orange books, right? He did. <laughs> so he could arm Rob with some formidable knowledge on how to take down a monster, right? Right. Yeah. No, I'm with you. That's pretty good. But But Rob's going to be completely useless later in this film. Well, I I don't know if we want to talk about that now, but I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Rob's going to get it, everybody. Uh, He's, I think, the third to last. Is that right? Yeah, he's the third to last to get it. And then I have another question for you about Mrs. Jarvis as well. Yeah. Do they do Rob in without enough of an opposition to Jason? Yeah. He's got the tent. Yeah. You got sound? Yeah, I do. 
So Rob's done in with the garden trail. It's kind of a weird death. I don't know if I should be disturbed by it or think it's utterly preposterous, but like, he's just going, he's killing me. He's killing me. Like run trail. Like that's kind of, why would you say that if you're being like mm-hmm. trialed to death? Mm-hmm. But it's also kind of disturbing. And this guy knows he's going to die, right? Right. Uh, I don't know where I fall on that pendulum, but you're right. I don't know. Maybe Rob should have they should have given him a little bit more of a fight here in this basement, but he's kind of done it like that. He kind of is. And they've given him the nice machete, which seems like a good weapon. Mm-hmm. We've already seen how effective the axe was mm-hmm. at the end of three in Jason's mask. And if you don't believe that, look at the cover because it's still the bloodstained crack in the mask that still exists. Yeah, he'll have a hole in that for the... Going forward. My thoughts on this are the reason that I don't think we get more from Rob is I think his part and this development from him might have been left on the floor. Mm. This is a 90-minute film, everybody. And although that's crisp and clean and refreshing and about all you need in a slasher film, there's another 10 minutes I'd be willing to do on this, especially if it's Rob and Tommy and the growth with those two sharing knowledge about maybe this terrible evil that we have to take down. And then secondarily, Rob versus Jason through, God, we've got to be 25 plus kills into this move into the series now. Yeah, 20. 20. No, man, we're, we're in the, how many the, are we at this point? At this point, God, the, we got to be close to 40. Like, okay. Yeah, Cause between are we, the first and the second film, like we're like, like 12 per movie. I mean, okay. Jason's really going through some people. <laughs> With that amount of of carnage that Jason has perpetrated on the unwitting victims in this movie, you already have set up something else too with Tommy, and that's this careful study Mm. of the characteristics of that killer. Now, that's not something new. We see the kid who is, it happened in in, um, Let the Right One In to a certain extent as well. The kid who's a little bit too knowledgeable about the patterns of serial killer. And you know what? That's actually... Fairly accurate. There's a lot of people, I mean, look at the podcast numbers right now that are into true crime. I'm sitting opposite the desk from someone here who loves it also. So I believe that. And this kid maybe is a bit too knowledgeable with what Jason has done. Maybe nobody believes him. Oh, he's been killed. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Oh, honey, turn off the video games and go read a book. He goes up and he reads his folder full of Jason. We get it, right? Right? We get it. (laughs) Yes. Um. But if he aligns with Rob in that scene, which was there yeah. in his bedroom, and yeah. that's what I'm telling you, it had to have been there, and maybe they just cut it, cut for, it for time, time yeah. then Rob takes on a bigger role because, boy, he's close, Jesse, I think, to having, this is a, ready for a hot take. Yeah. If Rob has done a little bit better, he might be the most important protagonist in the Friday the 13th series up to this point. Yeah. Because he has, and he has a good motivation, right? Yes. Revenge my, uh, avenge my sister's death, and I buy that. I don't know how much you remember the remake, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. the Michael Bay Platinum Dunes, and we'll get to that one in about eight years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Jared Padalecki's character plays a brother who's going to Crystal Lake to kind of look for his missing sister. So they kind of brought that element back. They brought the Rob thing back into the remake a bit. So it's something they're interested in. You know what else, too? Yeah. We've talked about in VHS. Yeah. That third story. Mm -hmm. The, I escaped the serial killer and I'm bringing my friends to the the killing grounds. 
as bait to mm-hmm. getting the serial killer out and take like we both really liked that and mm-hmm. said that was a movie. Yeah. So maybe I'm talking about this so much because it's rekindling those something you want to see. I do. Yeah. And we've like uh, we've also talked about how much Dream Warriors was very very well liked by us because we get the Dream Warriors arming themselves in a way that presents some opposition to Fre- to yeah to Freddy. Mm-hmm. We're in a good space. Yeah. Uh, it just might be a time thing, or maybe it didn't get there. But if it didn't, I'll give them the credit of saying they were at least on the right path writing-wise mm-hmm. to develop. And we've just talked about mm, 10 minutes about a character that has about seven minutes of screen time. <laughs> and so, done it in a very piss poor way. <laughs> it, it's still kind of working, is it not? No, I think so. I yeah. think that, that they're introducing some elements uh, that are working here. And I remember specifically last year, we had a good conversation about, Matt, can you imagine a group of friends that have no business being friends together. Like mm. how does anyone be friends with Shelly when he's as, as annoying as he is? Right. And then why are you bringing in some 35 year old stoners that are hanging out with some 20 somethings? Like th- yeah. that group just makes no sense together mm-hmm. and has no chemistry. And then you get the, this group of people that roll in 35 year old stoners. Yeah, you, you remember the, the, the Chong ripoff <laughs> yes. and uh, that, that was just too much, but you get this group of people and I kind of buy it. Uh, you have Paul. Let me see if I can do this for memory. Mm. Oh, wait, I got to look at the guy's first name. Okay. You have Paul and Samantha, which is this couple that's already pretty hot and heavy. Obviously, she's really good in bed, right? Because he's not complaining. Right. And they're sharing a room together, and they have a very Derry Dandridge uh, Fright Night moment, much mm-hmm. to the delight of Mr. Tommy Jarvis, who loses his mind over seeing side boob or whatever. Yeah. And... <clears throat> Then you also have... I can't do this, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's tough. Then you have uh, Sarah and Doug. And this is the couple that's like really into each other, but like they haven't gone all the way. And she hasn't. And they play her up very virginally really well. I mean, she won't even go skinny dipping with these people. No, she's busy reading Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> she probably is. So think about that, though. Yeah. Like We care about that character enough because virginal, the virginal ingenue, mm-hmm. to make jokes about her breeding little women. She's that, she's working. That means that character's working. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. And then you have Jimmy Crispin Glover and Ted, <laughs> Mr. Last American Virgin, and they might be my favorite characters in the film just they're because great. those are like the two buddies that like they're obviously coming to this trip with no women, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of last in that department, but they have a lot of thoughts on it, and they have a lot of like ways that they think they can score and. Oh, very American Werewolf in London on the and the Moors. Oh, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So the, the way it plays out for them is not how you anticipate. You'd kind of think Last American Virgin would, based on his looks and his vibe, would be able to score. But man, it's Crispin Glover getting getting all the ass in this movie. Well, we laughed about that too because that poor guy showed up in a bunch of '80s film that were rife with tits and ass, and he couldn't get laid if he was if he was you know the and, only customer on Nickel Night at the whorehouse. And not one of them. And I just kind of like their little banter. Like you. I get that these guys are, are buddies that yeah. there's a kind of conversation about women that you would have of like, man, why won't this girl talk to me? And she's like, oh, I, th- I think you're a dead fuck. You know, like, yeah, you're a lousy lay. That's why she left you. Mm-hmm. But don't go back to her because you don't go get dumped by the same person twice. Right. This is the kind of the advice he gives him. And on top of all that, if the film didn't have enough and everyone's already getting naked already, you get these twins that roll in just like, okay, like what fantasy is this where you're like vacationing with your buddies and these twins just show up on bikes. I mean, this is something out of just like a penthouse forum or something. Right. Like. Yes. And they are not afraid to get naked, right? Well, no one is in this Or film. throw themselves at whichever man is going to show them the most amount of attention. Yeah. Tina and Trish. Yeah. 
the twins, Crispin Glover and his strangely semi on the spectrum woodenness that plays so well in this. The last American virgin who was the, the, also the last American virgin in this film too. Yeah, we've created a nice collateral damage field that I care about. Mm-hmm. I I can't tell you how strong that is in 90 minutes. That's 90 pages. Yeah. And you have to do something in the 90 pages, which mostly should be dominated by the kills because that's what everybody paid the ticket the fee for the ticket to see. Yeah. To create some depth in those characters. I can't believe we're talking about this. Of all the things that I had forgotten about this film, and I've only ever seen this film one time, so mm-hmm. it's only my second time. I'm astounded by in 90 pages the depth that they made those made me care about those characters. And you know what else it might be? Yeah. It might be looking back at it, you know, 40 years later, 30 years later, 35 years later, whatever the hell it is, recognizing them from their later performances. So I cared sure. about them enough in this. So maybe it's just the trick of nostalgia. Like, yeah. hey, that's the, like you brought up, that's the last American Virgin. I mm-hmm. said, Who, that chick showed up in Family Ties. And sure enough, it was Weird Science. Yeah. And then, of course, we knew who Crispin Glover and, mm-hmm. and uh, Corey, Corey Feldman were. But maybe that made me care a little bit. But you know who we didn't ever see again that I don't know? Yeah. Is Little Women, the Virgin. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, Rob. Mm-hmm. They did a good job with that. And that In makes... a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah, that makes the kills better. Yeah. Because, yeah, when they go... In between that, we've had some body count with that hitchhiker that just... <laughs> just banana. Banana. Yeah, banana. Banana, banana hippie. Banana squeeze. Uh yeah. But no, yeah, we're doing a lot of really fun stuff. I want to play a clip here, and I got a lot to say about it. Okay, and I, I really, I, and I, uh, I want, I want your take. Okay. Would you care to dance? It's good. Oh, okay. Don't ask me to stay. Don't think you got it made. No, no. You're wrong. Cause you can't make it anymore. I know what you're waiting for. I should turn away and walk right Hey, how come you turn that off? <laughs> so good. I, I do have some stuff about this. I'm glad you played that. Okay. Let's hear I, it. I had seen this clip before I ever saw the movie. Oh, really? So I knew, I was like, well, this is a random wacko dance uh, in the middle of a Friday the 13th film. But I became so enamored with it and just got a fondness for it. And it's just weird enough that it's it has to be Crispin Glover, right? That it kind of fits in the confines of this film, but... That little slasher film I made while I was in college, I essentially just shot for shot ripped off this whole thing. The dance moves included, the the line, the pickup lines, you want to dance to this? It's to this, it's good. And essentially played out the whole thing in my little movie. And the kind of the difference was is instead of switching out vinyls, uh, the character played by my buddy Carson is was so up in arms about how awful the dancing was in his at his party that he he is going to throw the the vinyl outside like a frisbee and there's me outside and I'm supposed to catch it because 
we don't want to break it, right? Right. And here comes a gust of wind that takes that vinyl and oh. just shatters it like oh. on the thing. And it's just like, Carson, it broke. Oh. But I liked this scene so much because of it was a nice kind of levity moment before the carnage uh, that I just had to in- include it here. But what's your take on it? And then and we'll get into the music portion because you and I have had some fun through the years talking about this brand of music. We have. <laughs> um, okay, back to the subtext of characters that makes me care. The choice to ask a girl to dance to this song <laughs> is depth in the strangeness of Crispin Glover. Now, the fact that he's delivering it also, this is good. <laughs> Take your damn hands off her. Yeah. He's got a way, doesn't mm-hmm. he? But I buy it. And if this guy... I'm your density. <laughs> right, right. If this guy... Yeah can roll on one of the twins, Trish or Tina, and get laid with her. And then his buddy, the last American virgin, can't, then that camaraderie and the rivalry rivalry is also creating a larger interest level in the uniqueness of those characters. Who would have thunk that a dance that makes Julia Louise Dreyfus look like a capable mover would matter? It does, though. Look, $2 million, you have to find little tricks to make me care about the kills that can't just be, ooh, I hadn't seen that one before because I expect that. Yeah. If you can do, oh, I hadn't seen that before, and man, that kind of sucks that it happened to her or him, and it can't just be because she had a nice rack. That's really good. Yeah, when Crispin's disposed of later in a very great way, uh, the movie kind of has a little bit of a void, right? Yes. It's just like, ah, I kind of miss that Crispin guy. Yeah. I feel the same way when Bill Paxton is killed in Aliens. Mm. There's like another 40 minutes left of that movie, which I love. But like, I'm like, God, I kind of miss Bill Paxton. Like, yeah. the, the, you build up these characters that have a likability and just a uniqueness in their personality that when it's gone, it's like, oh man, I wish we kind of had a little bit more of it. Yeah, that's well said. Let's talk about lion. <laughs> yeah, love, okay. Love is a lie, lion. Like mm-hmm. uh, this particular era of music is just like Dokken, Winger, White Lion, yeah, White Lion, Firehouse, yeah. yeah, Poison, Warrant. Man, what what is it about this era? Just like it all sounds the same. I mm-hmm. mean, just throw Bon Jovi in there, and they sure. were like the popular group. Them and Poison, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Saigon Kick, uh, <laughs> just. What is it about that particular era of music that we just kind of like to poke fun of a lot? <laughs> uh, I think it's the lack of talent. Now, I know there's a lot of people that are going to be upset when they hear this because mm-hmm. I think you and I are in the minority when it comes to male listeners to Rise Smile that don't like hair metal, but we do not. Yeah. I think it's cheesy. Mm-hmm. I think, though, in this film, to me, it's a, a statement on why this movie works. Yeah. You almost get talent to be killed. Mm-hmm. And it shows because you already have the crowning jewel in the King's crown, which is Jason. So yep. now we just have to put pieces around it to fill out the plumage. Yes. Yep. Okay. So you get Feldman and, and Glover and the chick from weird science and the last American virgin. And you create a nice, like we said, backdrop of characters of familiarity with a touch of talent. Instead of just getting Towny group that needed a gig, yeah. you almost get a successful hair metal band. Yeah. They were almost White Lion, <laughs> yeah. who was almost Dokken, who was almost Bon Jovi. They like, couldn't, they, couldn't, they weren't cool enough to be White Lion, so they just had to be Lion. Lion. 
You're right. And like you said, like Saigon kick. There's levels. There's oh, a- dude, love is a lie. Love. <laughs> I can feel it in the air. <laughs> and all of those to me are knockoffs of Maiden. Yeah. Right. It's not their lyrics are not as epic and and. Um, but them and Judas Priest, like I think right. there's some real proficiency in those bands. As we get to the top tier. Yeah. Okay. So. Oh yeah, we're in like the D tier. D tier. Yeah. This is the <laughs> Moon Knight of hair metal. <laughs> Lion. Nice. <laughs> so, but it works. Yeah. Because it's almost talent, and that's I, again, that's yeah. what that's. Th- here's my my statement on all of this almost talent and why it matters. I want to ask you a question. Okay. How is it that hair metal, sorry, what am I saying? That the slasher horror genre is as dead as dead can be right now because this speaks to a loyal fan base, yeah. a micro budget, and a touch, a touch, and I mean a the lightest touch of talent, and the movie works wonders. Yeah, We could make the same case with Dream Warriors, which actually had Dawkins and even more talent. Yeah. And it is the crowning jewel of, of all of these to this point. Yeah. How, Two million, Jesse. Yeah. That's probably 15 to 18 today. Yeah. How is this genre dead? Because I guarantee you if a good one came out, that's, we'd be there. That's the thing is like we need that like film that like comes in and has that like paranormal activity effect that totally changes the game again, right? It's got to be so unique. It's got to be so inventive and it has to be good. It has to be like a good movie. Yeah. And then I think it'll come back, right? I mean, we'll get the copycats. We'll get like, oh, we got to need, we need that now, whatever that is. Um, but I'm with you. I mean, for from 78 Halloween to 84 here, six years, there's hundreds of movies that got made that were made for $900,000, $1 million that, yeah, they've made like 20 million bucks. Like we did Prom Night. Mm-hmm. Um, and that movie was like, $800,000 and pulled in like 25 million. Like, yeah, of course you're going to make more of that. Yeah. Who cares if it's art or cinema or whatever you want to qualify what you think good movies are, but like there's a business for that. There's a business that gets talent made. And we often talk about like the in for a lot of people is this genre, right? Clooney, Aniston, and Aniston, Kevin Bacon, Corey Feldman, <laughs> Chris, Johnny Robert. Depp, yeah, Johnny Depp, like a lot of talent, filmmaking talent, they get their start in this particular genre. So I'm with you. I wish it would come back, but it needs to, it needs to be inventive. It can't just be like a lot of the, I'll still watch all this if it came back. But I think that this new iteration of Halloween with Danny McBride and David Gordon Green has kind of helped bring that back a little bit, but that's a very tried and true franchise. Like where's like the one-off of, and that's where I kind of thought it follows kind of had an, an uh, a foot in the door with kind of like a quasi pseudo slasher. And then that kind of didn't go anywhere either. Mm. Listen back to last week's episode. <laughs> Unthought about that and into this hypothesis that I just posed, there is some evidence that with even a lot of talent, mm-hmm. which is Halloween ends yeah. released last night. Mm-hmm. And we'll see what the numbers look like. I imagine they'll be okay. I think they'll be good. Yeah. And I don't know what the budget is on the film, but the first two have made money. Yeah. <sighs> is it just appetite? Could be. What's changed? But I don't What's know, changed? But I don't know why the appetite now, because I'm kind of not on board with this right now, is we're like into like the, the conjuring stuff, right? We're in the ghosts and the spooks mm. and malignant and whatever the fuck that was. And yeah. we're in like that territory right now. So like we're not even into the torture stuff anymore. We're not into found footage is dead again. We're in this weird kind of like ghost, big studio horror films. And most of them aren't very good. No, and if you... 
kind of square that with the social horror that's so popular right now. Mm -hmm. And this flies in the face of all social commentary because yeah. this is pretty gratuitous and oh, yeah. there's like lots of boobs, like 20 boobs in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Lots. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I still think there's a space though. I think so too. I, and, I, I if done right, I think it just like, I think if the universal monsters and Tom Cruise, that it failed experiment excluded, I think they can come back and make an impact too. I still don't think that thing's entirely dead. All that needs to happen is one of those needs to hit and they need to do some. Well, we're waiting for the Gosling Wolfman, right? Yeah. Do yeah. we know anything more about no, that? No, it's just. Devo Hell? Yeah. Like all that has to happen is in that Gosling Wolfman is have any one of the characters that survived from the Invisible Man make a slight appearance. Yeah. And then. You can just brush it off if you don't want to go forward. Okay, but we're getting sidetracked here. Look, can I jump in on that real quick? Yeah, go. Yeah, I'm going to open up another tab for us, and then we'll close it. Okay. Because uh, I've been watching Shudder's 101 yeah. Scariest, their new version, right? Mm -hmm. And The Invisible Man popped up on that, the new one. Where? Uh, uh, like 33? Wow. Yeah. And they were just the clips. I, I haven't seen that movie since we covered it three years ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. But... Uh, there's some good moments in there. Like the, the moment, like what do you remember when she meets the sister and yeah. then gets her throat cut at the dinner? Yes. Like that's a pretty good little moment. So yeah. there's a place for the monsters to come back. There's a place for slashers to come back. I think it just, it needs to be done. Right. Right. Do you think the people that are new to the Halloween franchise yeah. in this last trilogy, mm -hmm. see that film and say, Oh God, I roll. I'm never going to see that. Okay. And because of that, the numbers suffer. Because I don't see that. They yeah. were never going to go anyway. That person has never gone to see this film ever. Yeah. They I just, would. They just avoid it. Yeah. Right. I would say the fan base has probably grown. And here's what I mean by that. As we all have gotten older that grew up with this and now are starting families or have some families. Mm -hmm. I, at some point, am going to introduce my family, yeah. my little one, to Halloween proper. Yeah. Like in a matter of weeks. Yeah. So whether that's rental or stream or cinematic, my daughter is is not at an age where I probably would take her to the theater and show her this because I'd probably get a lot of cross looks and I don't want to deal with that bullshit. Sure, yeah. But there are people that are our age-ish. Mm -hmm. I'm a little bit older than you, but in this, in, that have 15, 10 to 15-year-old kids that that's another butt in the seat yeah. that's monetizing this. And certainly in that new group that's going, there have to be some fans that go, I really like this mom or dad, whoever took me, yeah. what else? And then yeah. they backtrack it and rewind yeah. to this and prom night and all, all right? the old stuff. Yeah, no, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Because the parents that, to, the, to that point further, to the parents that never liked this when they were kids for whatever reason, and I have a couple friends that fit into that. Yeah. It doesn't mean that well, we, their kid. We, we talked with Dan a couple weeks ago. Not he, a right, he said, exactly. Uh, like I'm not big into the slasher stuff. Okay, yeah. But the, if Dan had kids, that doesn't mean his kids wouldn't mm -hmm. like it. And think about the marketing behind even Halloween ends compared to prom night or the first Halloween mm -hmm. or this. Wildly different. Yeah. I think there's a fan base that's grown from when this was popular. And again, back to the original premise. Yeah. I think they're making a mistake not really pursuing this in a well-done way. Yeah. Because it's cheap. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but as wildly popular and, you know, Halloween Kills, which I still love, by the way, yeah. in a ridiculous kind of good, bad movie fashion, came out during COVID 
in theaters and on Peacock, and I think still pulled in like almost close to fifty million its opening weekend. Like, oh man, what slashers are doing that? I mean, there's some power to that. Mm-hmm. And but what I want to know is like, man, where's the what's Nightmare doing? Like, where's that? Where's this? I know Friday the Thirteenth is in like a huge legal thing right now. Yeah, that I think's been figured out. But man, they're just sitting on these franchises, just twiddling their thumbs or whatever. Like, I, I'm really curious about Nightmare. It's been almost, it's been twelve years since that Jack Jackie Earl Haley version. Yeah, and man, what, what's going on with that? So good question. Well, next week we'll talk a little bit more about that. But <sighs> I think we're in some good territory right now. So the timeline here: these twins are really screwing things up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they start flirting with Paul, and then that pisses off weird science chick. So she's like, "Well, I'm going skinny dipping by myself in this probably frigid lake, right?" Ooh, yeah. And she gets the Kevin Bacon, like, through the apparatus thing. She gets, like, a harpoon spear through her back. Well, oh, it's, it's pretty brutal. And then to the credit of Paul and why these characters aren't just sleaze bags and, like, kind of nasty people, he kind of spurns the advances of the twin and yeah. was like, I got to go get my chick. And so he goes out there, strips to the nines, and, dude, he takes a harpoon to the penis. Oh, man. <laughs> Yes. In contention for best kill of this film, but man, that was brutal. Yeah. The sheer strength of Jason to hoist him up with one arm. Ouch. But like, that's kind of a good guy, right? I mean, he's enough to realize I can't just like hook up with this random twin. I need to go be with my girl. And that's a bad move anyway. Maybe he should have stayed at the twin, but. I didn't think, Jesse, you're so right. I didn't even think about that either. Yeah. They fix that character and make me care about, I just want to get laid guy with one line. Mm-hmm. Look, man, I can't do this to you. I actually have a girlfriend, and I need to go get her. And I care. Yeah, I care about her, yeah. As crazy as this sounds, ensemble pieces need to go to school. I'm saying this today, Mm -hmm. having never thought about it before, because I've, like I said, seen this movie one time. Ensemble pieces need to go back and go to school (laughs) on Friday Part 4 on how to build secondary characters that we give a shit about efficiently. In a limited amount of time. Because think about Paul, dialogue-wise, he maybe has maybe like 10 or 11 dialogue boxes in this film, yeah, right? Maybe, yeah, So they have to do a lot through action and exposition to really soften that guy. That way we kind of care about him by the end. So Jimmy Crispin is going to get laid by one of the twins. She's like super into him. Mm-hmm. And they go upstairs. They break the bed. Uh her of course twin, they do. Yeah, and her twin wants nothing to do with the found stag films going on. Man, what is going on in this house? Like, can you imagine, Matt, a crazier <laughs> time in, like, the 60s, and you're, like, a dad going and hanging out with the other dads in the neighborhood, and they're just popping on a stag film, and that was, like, something people did. Like, can I you know. imagine? I can't. There's kind of, like, a griminess to that that I kind of want no part of. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But, dude, it's enough for Ted. I mean, with a joint and some beer, this guy is just eating this stuff up. And then they're about to soften up these other... The virginal character has kind of decided, like, now's the time for me to shed this shield Mm. of being so prim and proper and maybe give in to what I feel is pretty right. So they go upstairs. They have some foreplay in the... Or maybe they, they probably have sex in the shower. Um... And in, in a very kind of a tender way, he's like, man, I'm on like, the guy's like, I'm on cloud nine. This girl's like, I think I, I'm kind of in love with you right now. And like, never in a Friday the 13th film are you going to hear those words uttered. Right. It's always about getting to just the nitty gritty part of it. But 
I don't know if this is Joseph Zito or the screenplay or these these actors, but they're really trying to like really tenderize some of these people before he's about to get his skull crushed in in the shower, and she's gonna take an axe through the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Jeez, man. Yes. But I think we're, we're we're doing some good stuff here. Yeah. Uh, I will play this clip next. Hope this is the right one. We talk about the brutality of Jason while that keeps playing. Corkscrew through the hand and then meat cleaver to the face. I mean, it's just this guy is, he's hes not struggling. He's not, he's very proficient in how he's going about killing people. And then what he's going to do with uh, the twin here, he's going to straight up pull her out the window and throw her, lethal weapon her on a car. That's really well shot too. Mm-hmm. In slow motion as she tumbles through the air, and I believe it. It's not green screened. It looks like she's really flying God. through the air. It's a real person. Yeah. Pretty good little death. Yeah, and then, yeah, the budget, I think, jumps out at me again. I was like, oh, they didn't have a lot of money to pull off a, a stunt like that, but they really just threw someone on a car and busted and busted that person, too. Mm. Uh, what's your best guess of, are we just, is Jason just like, I've always kind of had this hypothesis of leaving the morgue, trying to get back home to Crystal Lake, and then this is just the wake in his path, right, of, I've always seen Jason as this very territoriality type of predator, right? Like he's like anyone in this vicinity, I want no part of that. So it's just like, I'm going to eliminate that element from the team. And Michael's going to be a little bit different. Like we're really leaning heavy into, Oh, they're related, right? It's mm-hmm. just, it's the sister. So it's just like whole bloodline thing. And Freddie is revenge, from the, the revenge parents. of the people that burned me. Right? right. So do you kind of feel that way about, about yes. Jason? It's kind of almost like, like an animal, right? Like a bear or yes. like a cougar in the area. They get really protective about um, their area. I think that's a perfect description. Yeah. And to present him as non-syllabic and hulking and brooding the way that he does, I think bear is perfect. Do you like that he, he runs in this movie? He runs. Like, and runs pretty efficiently. I mean, he needs to trim his fingernails because they're pretty disgusting, but... He's kind of got it all right now. He's got the ingenuity. He's placing bodies in crazy places. He's killing people in crazy ways. He's got the cardio down. Uh, I kind of want no part of this part four, Jason. And to to this, this is kind of crazy, man. He's played by a stunt actor. His name's Ted White. Um, he died yesterday. Really? Yesterday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, to him. Yeah, to him. The only time he played the character, but I think he brought a physicality to it that is going to kind of wax and wane throughout this series in kind of weird ways. But uh, let's get into the kind of final moments of this thing. So, yeah, it's it's a bloodbath. I mean, we're like 12 people, 12 body counts into this thing. And uh, Trish comes back to the house after Rob's, you're killing me, death. And it's her and her brother. It's her and little Tommy. And 
Man, Jason throws Rob through that window. And little fun fact for the horror fans out there, this Jarvis cabin was used in another horror film that I in particular really like, which is Pumpkinhead. Mm. So this is like a kind of like North Los Angeles area. I think you can rent it out as like an Airbnb. So yeah, uh, we should go stay at the, we should. <laughs> at the Jarvis house. We should. That'd be great. We can reenact the movie. Just chasing you through the house. Uh, you could throw a TV on my head if you want. <laughs> I have a kill I want to ask you about. Okay. Mom Jarvis. Oh, yeah. Does he really kill her? I think so. Is there uh, an argument to why he wouldn't, though? Because it's mom? Right. Right? But then she's nowhere to be seen and doesn't pop up anywhere. That's why I'm asking is we don't see whatever became of her. I'm wondering if there was something they had planned with that one. I do believe there's an alternate ending where the mom shows up again. Oh, really? Yeah. But we get the the different ending we get. She's unique because she's one of the few parents we see him go after in this. Parents of the kids. Matter of fact, we haven't seen that at all yet. Yeah. If it's the mom, I could see the case where he doesn't do her in for the simple fact that it reminds him of her, of his mother. Mm -hmm. And if so, maybe, again, this is what got left behind. Yeah. I think that helps build up the Tommy Jarvis character, especially if he comes downstairs when uh, sister's being chased, armed, looking like he looks with mom. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah, off-screen death, we never see her again. And then even the dog, too. Gordon commits suicide. (laughs) Jumps out the window. He's had enough. I think Michael eats him later. Oh, yeah, he would. He got hungry. (laughs) Michael's eating dog all over the Halloween franchise. That's fucking crazy. Yes. Uh, I'm with you. That is kind of, it's always, I always wondered too, because it was off screen just because if we had another death, man, this thing's getting an X, right? Mm. Too gruesome or we got to cut away. But like, like, you don't see anything. You don't even see like Jason raise a ax or Mm -hmm. it's a reaction and she's gone from the movie. (laughs) Bye mom Jarvis. Interesting, huh? But this kind of final, like, kind of cat and mouse that Trish, Tommy, and Jason are doing into his into Tommy's room, smash a TV on his head. And then I think Trish, I mean, she's the final girl of the film, but it's really the Tommy Jarvis show here at the end. She kind of has to do the sibling duty, right? So imagine yourself as, like, the older sibling. And, yeah, you don't want him to go for Jason, so you give chase, and you got to, like, let this guy chase you. And then her solution is she's cornered. Well, I'm just jumping out the window too. Yeah. I think her duties as older sister are have been for, fulfilled in this thing as awful as they they've been for her. She had to see Rob get uh torn up in the basement and Jason almost get her and like I said Jason's given chase. I mean, he's running, he's like almost sprinting running these people down. But we get that moment, I mean, the through the the Jason clippings, he's seen this picture of a sketch artist of what he looked like as a kid, so Tommy's like, well, let me see if I can, like, confuse him. And in a very haphazard way, tries to shave his head in, like, a minute. (laughs) Yeah. And he comes downstairs here looking like a mess. I think I do have the the clip of this. Jason! Jason! Nature's 
So it's enough to kind of get him all out of sorts, right? And then they knock the mask off, and man, he's looking rough. And then Tommy gives like this fateful machete. Because I think Tom Savini's big tr- or thing for this film was like, okay, they want to kill Jason. How do you kill mm-hmm. the unkillable, right? I think they come up with a pretty unique way, which is this machete to the side of the temple, and then his face slides down it like all the way to the hilt, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's that, I, I think that'll do it. <laughs> but I love that they remove his armor too. Yeah, they knock off the mask too, so revealed, raw, mm-hmm. predator-like. Mm-hmm. Now you can get to him. I love that. That mask is so important, and has covered so many things, including his face, but also covering any weakness. I, it's a great way to do it. Good, to, good for Tom Savini to do it like mm. this. Yeah. Right, get down the hilt to the blade, Oof, and yeah. kind of looks like that's done. And then we see the fingers twitching, and Tommy's like, "Oh, not dead enough, right?" And just goes to town on the body, right, with uh-huh. the machete. And just what I imagine, because you don't see any of it, is that she's chopping Jason up into a bunch of itty bitty little pieces. Mm-hmm. That's pretty gruesome in its own right. And the fact that it's coming from this kid that hasn't really shown like any shreds of violence. And that's what I like what the film sets up. That is eventually kind of going to go nowhere, which was this kind of passing of the torch, right? We're going to get a little of this in Halloween in a couple weeks, but there's something to that, right? Is like, we want to try new and unique things with this franchise. So the death of Jason, absolutely. And then when we cut to the, hospital room aftermath and he's just kind of standing in the shadows there with all his messed up hair that like that always really bothered me just like standing in the shadows and then he comes and then creepily looks into the camera as we freeze frame right yeah clearly setting up setting up that like this kid's messed up and he's probably gonna be a killer going forward Mm -hmm. like he just chopped up a guy and yeah he's probably messed up for life now right what do you like that do you like if if this was gonna continue in any form, if this wasn't the final chapter in an alternative future, would you like to see it go that way? Yes. Wearing the mask and yes. probably, right? Yes. And you know what? And they set up the advantage that Jason or Tommy would, Tommy Jason would have over Jason Jason would be kind of like the intellectual piece, right? Ooh, even better. What does it take to finally finish Jason off? And how expensive is that going to be? And the answer is it's going to take everything. And it's so expensive that it's going to turn you into him because that's the level of depravity you have to reduce yourself to in order to get rid of this bastard. Mm -hmm. That's what the movie's telling you. Yeah. That creates limitless possibilities where you get to go with who gets to be the next Jason and, and, and what that means. And if you take Tommy, (laughs) who's much smarter than Jason. Yeah. And work him into that, I think they really had something. Yeah. Um, Halloween ends, I'm sorry, uh, the final chapter for for Jason, mm-hmm. for Jason. Yeah. But not for Tommy. Yeah. And why wouldn't you, if you monetize it, you know, know how horror goes, just keep it going. I just, the, the horror fans, they get a little too greedy where it's just like, if you're making another Friday the 13th, we want to see Jason, which is like, they, 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 they there's less buy-in on something new and exciting when... I really do want to see that. And the next film's going to lean into this idea a little bit more. And then by the time we get to six, it's they've completely forgotten about it. But this iteration of Jason, this Jason Voorhees that we've seen through films, at least two through four, that's become hugely popular by now, this version is dead. This guy's dead is dead. And so I like that they do commit to that. And man, they're going to go through every which way to bring this guy back <laughs> in crazy ways. But... 
I think it's a good death. You think it's you think it's good? Is it satisfying? Is this a good way to go out? Great way to go out. I love it. Yeah, it's okay. perfect. Excellent. Well, that's the end of the movie. Uh, Two million dollar budget. I think like thirty five, thirty eight million dollar gross. So yeah, it's some pretty good. That's some pretty good Paramount profit, right? Sure. You know, feed that into the Temple of Doom uh, budget, right? Mm. <laughs> Uh, all the crazy things going on in that one. But yeah, that's Friday the 13th, part four, uh, the final chapter. What's your favorite tasting kill of the final chapter? Spear through the balls. Hard to watch. That's a good one. Made me kind of clinch up a little bit. I really like the Crispin Glover corkscrew through the hand, meat cleaver to the face. And then aesthetically, I also kind of like Ted's uh, knife to the back of the skull slide down the projection screen. Mm -hmm. Not as gruesome as the other two, but I kind of like how that's set up. Mm -hmm. And he's just like so high. He's just like, what's going on over there? Doesn't even see what's coming towards him, right? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, those are the pretty good ones. Uh, Give me a second here. But what's the... Oh, my God! Moment of the final chapter. Jason's face to the hilt of that machete. Mm. You're right there. It's really, really, really close. You get to see exactly what's happening. Yeah. And then the oh my God part is like, oh my God, maybe we've also finally now really done it. We did it. Yeah. We found a way. Yeah. Good choice. I think I'm going to go with Rob's demise. Mm. More so because I can't quite figure out how I feel about it, whether I'm supposed to be disturbed by this guy going, he's killing me, or... That is kind of an unjust death or should have been even more grandiose. So Mm. there's something about that. And then it's hard to see too. It's really dark in that basement. You're kind of only seeing flashes of it. I've always been particularly interested in that 30 seconds that happens there. So that's going to be my, oh my God. Good. Who's the master distiller on Friday the 13th, the final chapter? Mm. Mr. Zito, the director. They put together a nice film on a franchise that was pretty much toast after number three. Brought it back and gave it, I think, a fine salute as it sent it off to the nether worlds, if you will. I thought, yeah, he's got to be the one. Kind of had a career with Canon Films after with the Missing in Action, Invasion USA, uh, Chuck Norris films. And his film prior to this that he actually did with Tom Savini was a slasher you should absolutely check out called The Prowler, Mm. also known as Rosemary's Killer. Um, That one's got some really good stuff in it. but he knows he knew a lot about tone, like I had to do it. And that's just what was so missing from the last couple injuries of a real sense of dread of this killer. And this might be the only time they ever really got that right with, with like Jason proper. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first film has that a little bit, but even that film has, it's kind of very questionable moments. Like here, I really thought they figured out like, here's a guy in a hockey mask. How can we make that really scary? And like, without getting too ridiculous with it, I think, this is, the, I think, the peak of this franchise with that particular idea. That's fair. How are you going to rate and grade the final chapter? We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you going um, this week? I think this is Call Plus. Um, yeah, I think this is Call Plus. It's really entertaining. There was a story here that was unlike anything we'd seen in the series since number one. We've talked a lot about the characters and how they made them matter. I think the brooding, stalking, sneaky Jason is a great change versus whatever (coughs) the hell happened in number three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm like a good, solid call plus. Yeah, that feels about right. (sighs) 
I'm with you. I'm called plus, and I'm kind of teetering a little bit into single barrel minus. I yeah. mean, for a film called The Final Chapter, I do want to see some finality, too. And I think you get that in this one. But spoiler alert, Matt, this is this is my favorite film in this entire franchise. Mm. I think it really brings the the... the, the the, the scare factor, I think the kills are great. I really like the characters. I love all the Crispin stuff. I can't get enough of it. I love the Charmy Jarvis element. I mean, it, it feels like they were building up to to this. And, like, I can't really say that about the other two franchises, which is Halloween. You know, I love the first one. That's the best one in that series. Mm-hmm. And Nightmare, it's either one or Dream Warriors. It's the Wes Craven component. But, like, here, man, we're four films in, and now we're getting the best. You saved the best for last? Last? Vanessa Williams, yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, I think I'm close to that territory where this could be like a really standout slasher film from from that era, and mm-hmm. I, I do I do believe it is. And coming from the year '84, which at the end of the year we're gonna get Nightmare on Elm Street and uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night, and that's gonna be the the nail in the coffin that particular Santa film. So, Can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe one day, and in some holiday cast, we could talk about that one because the conversation about the controversy of that film would be particularly interesting okay but um yeah that's friday the 13th the final chapter to your rating to your rating let's wrap this up with our nightcap Alrighty, so again, like we did in the flight, four films in, we did the best. Now, what are some of those worst fourth film entries in a franchise? And these were probably a little bit more to uh, to figure out because by the time you get to part four, the franchise has completely gone, lost its way, right? Yes. Going through that list where you just, ugh, after. I was like, gosh, I don't like that one. I don't like that movie. <laughs> there was a clear cut winner for me, though, on this one as well. Well, I hope it's not the same one. Okay. What do you got? Can we go first? Yeah. Oh, character you love. Okay. Love, love, love. Character that I love. Okay. But a terrible film. Okay. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Bad movie. Oh, that'll do it. Really bad movie. That'll do it. Uh, you know, Indiana Jones works with the introduction into ancient foreign cultures and cool tomes and glyphs and traps and his knowledge of archaeology and you know it doesn't work with any of that aliens aliens <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say uh good choice uh i remember terrible choice i remember yeah a terrible good choice i remember in particularly uh that night yeah because we it came out like memorial day weekend yep. i had just graduated high school so it's kind of like that like post like senioritis like getting ready for college type thing and course me and my friends were going to like all the midnight showings that summer so we went to see crystal skull and by happenstance the movie gets out and we're like in the lobby and we're just like trying to digest like this thing we just watched and you come out you come out too and i'm like man what's up how's it going and you come up to me and you're like hey what'd you think of that movie was kind of bullshit <laughs> and you're just like did not like it. I didn't like it. And man, Indiana Jones has been struggling. And there is a fifth one coming out, I believe, next summer. Mm. And quote unquote, I've heard decent things about it. Uh, let's so, hope. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, 
Maybe when that one comes out, we'll kind of wrap up our little indie thing. We should do Last Crusade. We'll do Crystal Skull, and then we'll do Indie 5, whatever it's going to be called. That'd be good, yeah. Yeah. I like that. Because we should get to the root on... Because, I mean, as bad as the aliens are, the whole Shia LaBeouf's my long-lost son with Karen Allen thing, like, that don't work for me at all. And you get them swinging with monkeys and the ants, and there's just so many things. The nuke fridge, there's so many things about it that are so wrong about what makes that franchise so good ruined it makes temple of doom look amazing that's true which i was very praiseworthy when we did that episode last summer oh no that I, I, yeah i don't love that film but that's a masterpiece compared to crystal skull great choice this was a clear-cut uh winner for me mm. a franchise that it has no uh uh, slim pickens when it comes to bad sequel entries and man it's jaws the revenge mm. Michael Caine and Lance Guest and Lorraine Gray, uh, Link, Lorraine Gary, mm-hmm. Gray. Uh, well, yeah, I think it's Gray actually. Yeah, the shark follows her down to the Bahamas, and it's a revenge shark, and the shark's looking bad, and to the point where Michael Caine uh, has admitted, "I only did that movie because I was building a house. <laughs> like he, I needed some money. He knew the movie was shitty." And what's even really worse about that, too, is I think he actually won his first Oscar that year for Hannah and her sisters Mm. and couldn't attend the ceremony because he was filming this movie. Oh, shit. (laughs) That's terrible. It's it's a very bad movie. And I think Jaws 4 gives Jaws 3D. It makes that movie look really good. Yeah. Uh, That's my number one. That's a good, terrible choice. Yeah. And another... uh, not that I need to see it. I don't ever need to see a Jaws remake in my lifetime, but like I'm surprised that they've never tried to churn out another Jaws property in any form after that film. Yeah, Scheider's kids would be old enough to where that'd be a good launching point at this at this juncture. Yeah, uh, yeah I'm surprised too, actually. Mm-hmm. As sequel happy as Hollywood tends to be, that, that that was one where we're like, you know what? Maybe that was enough. Sooner or later, you're going to get it. Yeah, you I will, know. Sadly. I know. You have Any, an honorable mention? I have a, I have a few. <laughs> I'm going to go with The Phantom Menace. That this whole entire empire versus the republic boils down to contested trade routes. And taxation. <laughs> <sighs> Come on, man. I, I didn't know it then because it wasn't as popular as it is now. But one of the things that other movie really highlighted and showcased poorly, because it's just hard material to work with, is the anticlimacticism, I just made that word up. Good word. Of prequels, man. Yeah. Like, that's the truth. You take someone that is established and as badass as Darth Vader and get to the pieces that maybe in about nine more hours will lead up to the beginning of that, it just, you just don't care. It doesn't matter. And I care even less about colonialism. Yeah. Yeah, that's what that movie is. Oh, man, dude. Yeah, and the and the weight and the anticipation and and the Jar Jar and the Jar Jar and like they actually found one really good thing in that that worked, which would obviously be Darth Maul. Yeah, and I think I've seen these as like eight minutes of screen time. And I think Ewan McGregor as Obi Wan Kenobi is a highlight of that entire prequel run. But man, Natalie Portman's really wooden in that thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Liam Neeson's kind of sleeping his way through that movie. Qui Gon, yeah. The <laughs> the music's really good. John Williams' score in that film's amazing it's one of the best scores of any of the star wars films but man yeah all that anticipation star wars is coming back 
you probably went to see that like right when it came out, right? The, anticip- the anticipation and you're like, you're what? reading the opening scrawl. And we got to do those movies one of these days to, to get to the root on why they're so bad and why the other ones are so much better. You're reading the opening scrawl of Phantom Menace and you're like, the taxation of trade routes? What? <laughs> you're just like... What? Trying exactly? to figure out, like, oh, this is what we're going? Like, or the other one's like Rebel Alliance and Stolen Plans and it's the matter of life or death. It's like the stakes could not be more different. Or inconsequential. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. And you know what? It's like, as bad as you think Phantom Menace is, I actually think it has, like, they at least filmed on location and have some practical, decent effects from time to time. I think it gets way worse with Attack of the Clones. I think that's a way worse entry in this franchise. Yeah, could be. Get the whole Hayden Christensen element going Oof. on there and a love story that has zero chemistry on the chemistry rating. Yeah, zero, man. Count Dooku and just like it, Django and Boba Fett and it's just, it gets worse. <laughs> it, gets it, gets, worse. it gets worse. It gets worse. Yep. Clones. Great choice. Any others? Mm, yeah, but we could never stop if I start. So I'll just stick with that one. Well, I don't want to stop. Uh, but... <laughs> Uh, Batman and Robin. Yeah. We did a whole episode on that. Superman for the quest for peace. Really bad. Um, and another one, and this might be slightly, slightly controversial, but this is a franchise that I think I thought kind of got worse as it went on. And then they decided to split the last one into two movies. Hunger games, mocking Jay part two, I think is an almost unwatchable movie. Terrible. Film. It's so boring. So boring. And it's also just not the story. Like I, I got so tired around that time, 2013, 2014 of this like post resistance underground movement to stop the post-apocalyptic group from taking over or whatever. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, it, it, it just, it just wanes on you. And yep. They should have just made Mockingjay one movie and just been done with it. But then they split it into two and they were, they're both boring. The biggest problem with that story is once they take over the capital, they being the the resistance, the fact that the capital leaders are not put into the grid and forced to do what they've made everybody do for 75 years until Katniss realizes she's becoming the evil that she's fought against is the biggest sin in storytelling that I've ever (laughs) come across. Yeah. It was right there. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Yeah, that's the book, right? It's the book not laying out that foundation. Yeah, that's the book's fault. Mm-hmm. God, it, that's so easy. That story tells itself. That'd be cool to see. But so no, it's simple. Instead, you get people sneaking around on in the countryside trying to overtake this base and that base, and I could not be more bored. <laughs> Thank God the Ewoks didn't show up on Endor. Yeah. So there's a just a, another slight honorable mention. Um, I'll give you one more Star Trek for the voyage home is a piece of shit too. the whales. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Is that one? I think Leonard Nimoy directed that one. That's when he was like, Hey, I could direct these movies. too. <laughs> you can not capably, but you can. And you know, what's crazy about that is I think William Shatner got pretty jealous. Cause then Shatner directs five. Uh, that's on Tom Hardy, isn't the, it? The final frontier. No, that's nemesis. Oh yeah. That's, that's years later. That's terrible too. But, uh, Shatner directs the final frontier part five and that movie's. Even worse than the Voyage. Oh man, that's a bad franchise. Really, it that is. has one good movie: it has, the Rathacon, half of Search for Spock. I can't stand the motion picture. That's that, that's Oof. poor city. That'll put you to sleep. Yeah, it's terrible. Forget Nyquil. Just put on the uh, motion picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then yeah, you're right. Just kind of the rest of it. And then like I, I never got super into the next gen stuff with the Picard and Patrick Stewart. But then they made another four movies with that. Yep. But I did like the new ones. Yeah, those were good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. 
Great choices. Great choices. Can't wait to... We already know the question for next week because mm-hmm. we were going to do it here, but let's save it for next week. So I'm looking forward to having a very lengthy conversation about that answer. Yeah. Uh, but that's the end of Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Coming to you next week, we are going back to Dreamland, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master. Mm-hmm. Directed by our favorite filmmaker, Mr. Rennie Harlan. <laughs> what? <laughs> Uh, sure it wasn't Paul Verhoeven. Well, this is cr- this is crazy that... Uh, so this particular entry coming off the huge success of Dream Warriors, Dream Master is the highest earning film in this entire franchise. What? So we're at the peak of Freddy Fever. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask you about that next week and like what that looks like because between Freddy showing up in Dockin' on MTV and then the Freddy Nightmares TV show. I mean, like, he's kind of everywhere, and he's becoming more... Saturated. A more of a personality than, like, than like what the film's providing. So this will be this will be an interesting conversation. It'll be fun. And this finally has the moment that we've long talked about for years, you and I. What's the Nightmare on Elm Street film where that chick's bench-pressing and turns into a cockroach? This one. This one. <laughs> yep. So we got that at least, and I can't wait to talk about that little moment. That'll be fun. Uh, excellent. So to you? To you. I got to get going. I'm going to go put on some lion and do my version of the Crispin dance. Um, I think you should. Just, everyone should do a Crispin dance at the end of each work week uh, to just celebrate another week done. I'm going to videotape it and sell it to morticians so they can watch their version of Porn. Yeah, watch that instead. We'll of, monetize that instead of their jazzercise. Yep. Excellent. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, is property of Paramount Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.